The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink! The TNT Shop has it all at tntradio.live. This is the Dean Mackin Show on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Yeah, the smile you get on your dial that goes from ear to ear. The only time you can typically get it is on a Friday afternoon. Those of you waking up over there in the UK, I know you've got it too. You've got the day to get through, but we've pretty much come to the end of our working day here in Australia. So uh, you will see that smile all over my face uh, this afternoon. We love it. But then again, I I would do this job. Don't tell the bosses. I do it for free because I actually love talking to you people. Uh, Lots to talk about today. Thank you to Chris Smith, by the way. Uh, We'll get Gemma Cooper in in, uh, shortly. Uh, Russell Bentley will be joining us. We're going to talk to him. He's living over uh, in all part of, you know, in Kiev, the Ukraine. A man who's been living in that region for since well before, I, I do believe, 2014. I'm going to ask him what he thought of uh, Vladimir Putin's chat with Tucker Carlson, a whole bunch more. What's happening over there? And apparently the fighting is ramping up. Can you believe that? No money. They're running out of money. They're definitely running out of people, certainly of Ukrainian descent in any case. Uh, we'll find out exactly from the man himself what's going on over there. And of course, TGIF, that means it is Omar Khan going to be joining us as well. Now, don't get too excited because whenever Whenever anything really good comes up, we know it usually fails, especially when it's got to get referred up the chain. I'm talking about Idaho passing a bill. Hope you're sitting down. Hope you're loving this as much as me. And they, they are considering pedophiles, those who abuse little children repeatedly, young children, children way too young to even talk about. They're going to do plan to execute them. And I am all over that. I'm happy as a pig in proverbial. If they want to do that to these creeps, good on them. It's going to be referred up the chain. The bill passed very, very easily. Uh, in their lower house, but uh, it has to go up the chain. So don't get too excited. It may happen. It may not. They may think more logically in Idaho than we do here in Australia, but that's exactly how I think. Uh, send them to meet their maker because we don't need them to ever reoffend, And that's one way of making sure that happens. Uh, Putin, they're really going to be after him now. If you thought they were after him because of the Ukraine and not being a globalist puppet like the rest of them, well, now he's really done it. He's announced to the world that they are very close. They are developing and very close to having a vaccine for cancer, all types of cancers. And if I was somebody living in Russia, that's something I would probably put my arm out for because I would trust the people making it. I would trust my own government if I was living over there. I don't trust the government here. I don't trust them one bit. Hence why I didn't put my arm out for that last sort of poison. And of course, if I was in France and I said that, I'd be saying bye-bye. Why? Because I'd be off to jail or facing about forty dollars or $50,000. So that could have been, you know, like the equivalent of pounds. I'm not sure. But a lot of money, tens of thousands of whatever currency they are going to be doing that in. Obviously, in France, we know what that is. But quite simply, you could get locked up if you simply criticize mRNA vaccines or gene therapy. So if you thought they had it bad in Ireland, this is just wow. This is like, they're serious. And why would they have this? I mean, you could say that ship has sailed. No, obviously, I would suggest that this time bomb, and I would suggest it could well be a time bomb, is about to go off and they don't want anybody linking it with what's been happening over the last three or four years. But wow, you could literally go to jail if you criticize or uh, mRNA vaccines or gene therapies. Um, you can't make this stuff up. You really can't. Now, Jackie Lambie, somebody I'm not a fan of, I consider her to be pretty much unhinged. And of course, that's just my opinion. So I'll play a short video of Jackie Lambie and look at the eyes, look at the eyes, and you be the judge 
for yourself. And for those who aren't watching, have a listen. Every bit of work that you think you've done for every woman in Australia has just gone down the gurgler. You are full of it. Absolutely full of it. Jen, would you like to say something? You're making us all feel very excited about yes. being here. The eyes have it, and I mean the eyes have it. But you can fix this. There is a cure. I've seen it happen before. It's been in movies. And the only way to address that is this. The power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. Yes, I can hear the holy water boiling from here. Jackie Lambie, seriously, I can't believe. Clive Palmer, what the hell were you thinking back in the day, thinking that would make a good candidate? And wow, and Tasmania, wow, really, seriously? And they just keep on getting the back. It is absolutely ludicrous. And for those of you who aren't watching, I implore you to check out that video. You can do that via the episodes page here at TNT. And of course, a poor fella, he's a real estate agent. He's living in Perth. His name is Tony Maddox, and he's facing jail, and rightly so, because you know what he did? This guy is bad. This guy is mean. This guy is nasty. What he did was he upset the rainbow serpent. Yes, how dare he upset the imaginary rainbow serpent? And under these 1972 Aboriginal Heritage Act laws, what he did was there's a little creek, a tiny little creek running through his um, his property that he owns. It's got his name on the deed. It's his, his, and it kept getting washed away. This path kept getting washed away. So he built a little bridge over this. He made it look very nice. It was very respectful. And of course, the next thing you know, he's got two prosecutors on the phone asking, mate, can we come out and have a bit of a word with you? They go out, inform him that he has breached these 1972 Aboriginal heritage laws. Uh, he could be in big trouble. He could actually go to jail, believe it or not, because he's upset the rainbow. Why would you upset the bloody rainbow serpent? For God's sake, Tony, what's wrong with you? And he did that. How dare he? And um, he's a former counsellor himself. Now he's got to lodge all kinds of DAs and whatever, but it gets better and it won't even surprise you. He's got the local Aboriginal elders out. He knows them. They've come out. They're very happy with the property. It's very respectful, you know, to the Indigenous of the past, according to them. And they basically said to him in words that I can't repeat, that'd be white fellas doing this, white fellas using this, this law, this rule. And uh, I don't even know if they were aware of the rainbow serpent. There's cer certainly a serpent at play here, but it ain't no rainbow serpent. I can tell you that it is absolutely just nasty what is going on. But yeah, lots, lots happening around the world. And uh, we need to get to Gemma Cooper because I've gone way over. And I do apologise. Now, last December, Julian Assange's two-day public hearing was announced for February 20 and 21 in the UK High Court. It will determine whether Julian has the permission to appeal and whether he'll be extradited to the United States or not. Now, TNT will be at the Royal Courts of Justice, will be broadcasting and covering the entire two days if required, and the TNT broadcast will be from various locations throughout London. Also, the London premiere of the Trust Ball, Julian Assange, will be at the Rio Cinemas on Sunday the 18th of February from 1pm. Uh, this film will be followed by a panel discussion and Q&A with Tariq Ali there, uh, Kristen Harafdan, I'll never be able to pronounce that name ever, uh, and hopefully Stella Assange will be there as well. To find out more, go to Google and search for The Trust Fall, Julian Assange, London Air. We'll be back right after this with Gemma Cooper. Delivering the facts. Source I can trust. Today's News Talk Radio. TNT. And we're back, and we're back. I was just going to tell Jim, thinking I had more time, 
Whatever she does, Jim, do not upset the rainbow serpent during this broadcast. <laughs> uh, I think uh, there's enough going on in the UK uh, today to <clears throat> steer well clear of the rainbow serpent. I think Rishi Sunak, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a Friday. Uh, we like to try and bring positive news, don't we, to uh, TNT on a Friday, end the week on a high note. Uh, I think for the Labour Party in the UK this morning, it's an incredible high because there's been some by-elections overnight. The results are trickling in as we speak. And uh, it's a historic win for the Labour Party, a, a Black Friday for Rishi Sunak as uh, the two constituencies that uh, held these local by-elections um, have seen the Tory, the Conservative majority, which were massively significant in both of these local constituencies, overturned historically by Labour. And it means that the Conservative Party now in the UK have had more by-election defeats than any in, in a single parliament in the last 14 years than any government since the Second World War. So we're talking almost 100 years, actually. Uh, the, one of the constituencies was not far from me. It was Kingswood in the in the southwest of England, in Gloucestershire. And the other one is Wellingborough, uh, where the, the both majorities were overturned. Uh, they were really safe conservative seats. In Kingswood, it was an 11,000 majority. That's been overturned by Labour. And in Wellingborough, nearly a 20,000 majority for the was, was the sitting MP, Peter Bone. He lost his seat last year after an inquiry into bullying and sexual misconduct allegations, the other MP quit, the Kingswood MP quit in January over the government's North Sea oil and gas policy. Uh, both both parties, uh, both seats rather, have been overturned by Labour. But what's very interesting is normally it, it's a two horse race in the UK. It's Conservative or Labour, you know, like it is in the States, you know, Republican or Democrat. But normally the runner up is the Liberal Democrat Party, who, who always comes in as a kind of chasing third. Uh, but not no, not now. Uh, both of the third parties to come in uh, are, are the newly formed Reform Party. So uh, just for example, in Kingswood, uh, the, the, the Labour took uh, the seat with 11,000 votes, overturning the Tory majority. The Conservative Party came second with 8,000. But then Reform uh, were, were bringing up the rear with 2,500 votes, uh, quite significantly more than the Liberal Democrats. And in, in uh, Wellingborough, uh, Labour came first with 13,000. Uh, Tories 7,000, but the reform pulled in nearly 4,000 of the votes. So it's a newly formed political party, uh, quite ostensibly looking at the same things that we look at here at TNT, uh, pulling in quite a significant chunk of the electorate, those who bothered to turn out. I haven't got a breakdown yet of exactly how many, many people did decide to go to the ballot box yesterday. But this could be indicative very well of what's going to happen in a general election this year. We know we're going to have one. We just don't know the date yet. Uh, it, both uh, both seats were thought to be quite safe. Both seats have been hugely overturned, overturning massive historic Tory majority uh, votes. Uh, so it, it's not a, it's a Black Friday for Rishi. It's a great Friday for Labour. Will this be indicative of general, the general election? Because by-elections aren't always seen as how the massive electorate will turn out as a whole in the UK. But it's certainly a shock this morning for the Conservative Party. Now, whilst I'm here in Australia and you're over there in the UK, we understand our duopoly uh, in lockstep. We understand how the whole thing works in reality. And you said a historic win, but I mean, it is an historic win for naivety, for stupidity. People thinking, well, these fakes, these pretenders, these conservative pretenders are no good. So let's go for the, wow, let's go for Labour. It's just ridiculous. And if they think that's going to stop the boats and stop people coming through the channel and illegal immigration and all the problems that you're suffering now, I would suggest it's just going to make it worse. And how do we know that? Because we just did that. We have a Labour government in almost 
all but one state of Australia. We have it federally. It is a basket case. We had 750,000 people come in. This is a population of only 26 million. That is massively significant uh, at a time when we got no houses. So, I mean, this is just going from bad to worse. It really is. In the last four years, have taught people nothing. Maybe a few of them have woken up, obviously, going to, for the Reform Party over the Lib Dems because they seem to be, be, to be more fair income, to use an Aussie turn of phrase. But, um, well, I, I just don't think people learn. I mean, they, oh, that, we're not happy with that mob. We'll go with the other mob, despite the fact we know they are worse when it comes to all the things that are causing us the biggest and most irreversible problems in our nation. You can't help stupidity. You can't fix stupid. Well, <laughs> there are still a significant chunk, I think, of the population here that do believe that the ballot box will affect change. And you and I talk about voting quite a lot. I mean, I'm quite a disenfranchised voter and I haven't voted. But actually looking at the fact that reform have pulled in a significant third place, it's not just a few hundred votes, dribs and drabs here and there. Um, and there were more than there were more than three parties, uh, four parties standing. There were other fringe parties that have been formed. But reform have um, made significant strides in this by-election, you know, they've pulled in quite a significant chunk. I mean, certainly in the Wellingborough seat to pull in nearly 4,000 votes where, when uh, when the Conservatives pulled in 7,000. Uh, that, that's that's showing something, at least, of the change in, in electoral behaviour. Um, certainly always it used to be Conservative, Labour or Liberal Democrat. That was the way things went. In a few constituencies in England, a few uh, a very few, maybe the Greens would have pulled in a, a bigger chunk of the vote. They're nowhere to be seen, actually, in these by-election uh, uh, candidates. So it, it is, it's an interesting development, without a doubt, the number of votes that reform is pulling in. Uh, the historic wins for Labour, they'll be absolutely jumping up and down with glee on this one because it is a general election year. But obviously, yeah, as you rightly say, Dean, you know, it's happened in your country. Will we see change or will we see things getting worse i suspect oh, it'll it will be, be worse. the latter yeah if if this happens you know fully across the the country in a in a general election which people here think now after the fact after the news yesterday that we've gone into a recession uh, people are thinking now it will be an an autumn general election and not a spring one and jim as a percentage what were the reform party getting i, I heard the numbers but as a percentage what were they like 4% 5% somewhere around there uh, well, we'll have to. I'll have to get my calculator out on a Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Just for example, let's let's try and work. Should we try and work it out? So, so example, Wellingborough, uh, Labour thirteen thousand, Conservative seven thousand, Reform four thousand. Uh, I don't know. I need to go. I need. To, yeah. yeah Twenty four one. Yeah, it's actually quite significant. I think it's up around fifteen yeah. percent or something. I think that's actually reasonably. I could be wrong. Um, reasonably, reasonably significant. Um, one nation here typically, you know, got about eight, nine. 10% and with the United Australia Party at the last election, I was a candidate for that. They split it right, you know, almost down the middle uh, between them. That was the problem when you've got these parties that are so similar. Some people go for rather than who's the best candidate in their local area, they typically go for which leader they like or dislike the most, you know, depending. But um, it seems to be the case. I, I just hope, I mean, if England ever, ever uh, needed some people who were going to do the right thing, do the right thing to bring back some common sense and just do what is right and has been right historically to stop doing all the things that are now proven to be doing immense damage and that will get exponentially worse over time. The fact that we don't have a party who is advocating to do that specifically and that, that they don't have everybody voting for them now that, it, you know, I mean, look at the world we're living in, compare it to 40 years ago, and wow, why are we voting for either of these main, you know, the duopoly parties? I don't understand. I literally don't understand how people can still be that stupid. 
Well, let's uh, let's see. Let's see what happens at, at the general election as opposed to these by-elections. But as I say, it's a historic overturn of what were considered very safe conservative seats. So maybe maybe sometimes by-elections, they're a little bit of a pressure cooker valve and, and people kind of go to the polls locally because they feel that more change will happen locally uh, than they do to a general election. And the, and the pressure valve is released. People kind of show their fury at the ballot box by voting the other way. But when it actually comes to a general election, they carry on as normal. I don't know. I don't know what the mood is um, because sometimes by elections, I've, I've covered quite a few local elections in the past. And what you see at the local elections isn't always reflected uh, in a general election. So we don't really know. But actually, these seats, they were so considered safe. Let's see what happens in a few months time. It'll be very, very interesting. Certainly something that we'll want you to follow up on. Gemma Cooper, thank you very much. I hope you have a terrific weekend. Of course, you'll be back next hour with Sonia Poulton. And I just hope you have the best weekend ever. That's uh, everybody. The wonderful Gemma Cooper. Up after the break, we're going to be talking to Russell Bentley live. And uh, you're going to get it right here at TNT. TNT's Mark Morano. Here's the bottom line. Higher CO2, which allegedly is causing catastrophic climate change, has led to the greening of planet Earth. 2016, NASA acknowledges there have been multiple studies, a recent study, deserts are shrinking, forests are growing, plant life is, is increasing, and here's the biggest part. Crop yields are through the roof. Through a combination of the CO2 greening of the Earth and also technological advancements in farming, high yield agriculture, the green revolution, etc. But the problem is not, as she said, the farmers aren't protesting because, oh, things are bad because of climate change, and that's why we need more net zero rules to make things better with our climate. No, they're protesting because the climate regulations are what are killing the farmers, not climate change. Mark Morano on today's News Talk TNT. Hi, I'm Susan Lucci. I never thought about heart disease until I had my own heart event. At first, like so many other women out there, I ignored my symptoms. A slight pressure on my chest, shortness of breath. I thought, I don't have time to be sick. I had a 90% blockage in my main artery and a 75% blockage in the adjacent artery. I received two stents in my arteries, stents developed through research funded by the American Heart Association. Those stents saved my life. I'm so grateful to the American Heart Association. Their research helped save my life. I can enjoy life with my children, my grandchildren, and my friends. Please, listen to your heart. The only reason I'm here today is because I did. Learn more about the American Heart Association's life-saving work at helpheart.org. Listen up! Now listen, we gotta talk. It's what we do best. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. And welcome back to the program. Um, a lot of you by now, and there are millions around the world that have done it, certainly uh, they don't get those kind of numbers in the lamestream media who have watched Tucker Carlson interview Vladimir Putin and a man who would be immensely affected by things that are happening in that region because he lives there. Um, I'm talking to you right now, Russell Bentley. He is Russell Texas Bentley, as he's known, a military vet veteran born, born in 1960 in Austin, Texas, a voracious reader. He grew up in the times of the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement. He served in the US Army from 81 to 84. But after the NATO attack on Yugoslavia, the Gulf War, 9-11, the attacks on Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria and Libya, he uh, when he saw that regime change in Kiev in 2014, he moved to Donetsk 
and he joined the people's militia against the Kiev regime, not just somebody who noticed that the world had gone mad, somebody who actually went over there and is going to fight for it, and I applaud him for doing so. We've got him on the line. Russell Bentley, how are you going? I'm doing great, Dean. Thanks for having me on. Mate, thank you for being on the on the right side of history. I applaud you for, for doing what, what you're doing. A man who uh, has watched the world change, uh, observed the wrong direction it's heading in, and then gone and done something about it with that, which m most of us would, you know, say we'd love to do, but very few actually do it in a, a an as active a role as what you are. I think it's absolutely terrific. Mate, you would have uh, no doubt seen the uh, Putin uh, interview by now. Of course. Now, I've got to ask. It's a great um, interview. It's a history-making interview, I believe. Now, I want to ask because there's nobody that I know I could ask for a more accurate appraisal of that which um, Putin said. Mate, how much of that would you agree with that Putin said about the region and everything, all the events of 2014 and so on? You know, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's pretty much all absolutely true. And, you know, of course, I'm not uh, here to be like a Kremlin propagandist or anything like that. Um, there are things that I disagree with, with Vladimir Putin, but uh, I gotta say, I mean, he's, he was talking mostly about history, you know, not just uh, modern history in recent years, but, you know, going back a thousand years, and I'm a bit of a history buff myself, and, uh, you know, I get my history not from, uh, you know, TV or YouTube, I get it from books that are written on paper so they can't be changed. And I know that what he said was almost absolutely the truth. Now, mate, you moved over there. You uh, you took a very active role in what's going on. Uh, you've seen the world change. You've certainly seen your region change over 10 years. And I'm of the belief that the fighting of late has really ramped up somewhat. It really has. I mean, uh, I got here in 2014 um, just when, you know, it was 2014 when the Maidan coup d'etat happened, uh, U.S.-backed, completely uh, financed and directed by the United States and NATO. Uh, they used genuine neo-Nazis to be the muscle to make that happen, uh, just like they used uh, ISIS in Syria. Um, and so I've seen it. I know, and when I came here, I came here to join the Army, which I did. I saw some very heavy fighting in uh, 2014, 2015. And uh, then in 2017, I went back in for a while. Uh, I was actually fighting in 2017 on the Avdiivka front, which is very, very hot again right now. But uh, the last two years since the special military operation happened, you know, it's been a whole different war. And I mean, the thing, the most important thing about the the combat here now is that this is the first uh, drone war, and. You know, even from two years ago, the importance of, you know, uh, drones, you know, uh, unpiloted robot vehicles has, has changed uh, the, the course of warfare forever, forever. There's nothing that's done anymore in war here that doesn't involve drones. When infantry units uh, storm a town or a forest or a trench or something, drones are used. When armor moves forward, drones are used. Um, you know, when... They go behind the lines and they search out artillery. So that's the big thing so far in the last two years in this war is that uh, drones are absolutely uh, completely new and now essential part of all warfare from here on out. Yeah.
I want to talk to you about mercenaries. And I've noticed I watched some video of some fighting uh, over there uh, the last couple of days. Very high quality GoPro footage. I noticed the accent were Australian and British, uh, these guys fighting. Uh, very, very soon into the video, as you uh, advocated, the drones came in and it was, it was quite devastating. Uh, how they survived it is anybody's guess. Do you think a lot of these mercs, uh, and we'll take it one, one part at a time, do you think they have any idea what they're in for? Because as you said, it is really the first uh, drone war in history. Do you think that these people who are coming over and fighting a foreign war quite simply for money and for probably no other reason, do you think they have any idea what they're in for once they get there? Well, there's, there's two types of mercenaries that are coming over on the Ukrainian side, bro. There's the uh, TikTok warriors, the, you know, adventurers that, you know, just want to come and take selfies and, you know, G.I. Joe type stuff. And then there's, and those guys, you know, they don't have any idea. And they are, you know, uh, they don't last very long, let me put it that way. But there's another type, which is, you know, professional soldiers, uh, particularly from NATO countries. And these guys are like special forces operators. They're highly trained. They're the ones that use the more technical equipment, uh, you know, like the uh, M777 um, uh, artillery, you know, pilots of, of the, the jets and stuff like that. These guys are professionals. They're, you know, you know, they're the guys that get paid, you know, 10 or 20,000 bucks a month to come here. And they, they do know what they're getting into. You know, these are, you know, professional killers, expert torturers, you know, uh, the kinds of guys that, uh, you know, give normal people nightmares, you know. And so those guys know that the dudes that come over just for an adventure really have no idea what they're getting into, you know. I mean, I, when I came here in 2014, I understood that, you know, having been in the U.S. Army back in the 80s, I understood what uh, being a soldier meant. I understood that I was coming in on the small side against a, you know, a full national professional army. I mean, we were the people's militia. We were lucky if we had an RPG, um, you know. And you know, and I when I came here, I didn't expect to live through the winter, but I did. I was very lucky. Uh, I was good at my job. I had some great comrades that backed me up, but mainly I was lucky, and I had uh, guardian angels. Mate, you, you are very lucky. You're also extremely brave. You're doing it for all of the right reasons as well. And again, I think uh, on behalf of most of the people listening, I would applaud you for, for your efforts. Um, mate, now I would imagine after everything that I've heard that uh, now that this war has ramped up, they're going to need more soldiers. Now, apart from this money and all this funding that they're hoping to get some of it from America, good luck with that. Um, mate, they obviously are going to need more mercenaries because I would imagine there aren't too many Ukrainian males of fighting age who are willing to step up at this point. Well, there are too many males, Ukrainian males of fighting age that are left, bro. I mean, you know, uh, Ukraine at one point, uh, you know, or say before the war was about 24 million, and now it's, you know, at least 6 million less right now, you know. And the thing is, I mean, the the losses are staggering on the Ukrainian side. They're very sobering on the Russian side as well. But, uh, I mean, this is a, a war of attrition, you know, between our, you know, it used to be that artillery killed 70% of the soldiers on both sides, and now with with artillery plus drones, you know, it's, um, you know, eight, between 80 and 90%, you know, so it's a, a very deadly war. 
on both sides. But here's the thing, man. There's a NATO so-called exercise that's going on right now, and it's called Steadfast Defender, and it involves 90,000 troops from NATO countries, including, you know, major uh, move of uh, soldiers and equipment over from the United States across the Atlantic, and uh, this exercise, so-called exercise, it's in Romania, it's in Poland, it's in Germany, it's in the Baltic countries up north on the Russian border, and it's supposed to run until uh, the end of May, until the end of May. And at that point, th there's a real concern because already the UK is talking about uh, saying that we need to send in peacekeeping force into, uh, into Ukraine. And so the real concern here is that all these troops that have been brought over for this so-called exercise are going to come into Western Ukraine and they're going to say, look, look, we're not going to fight the Russians. We're not going to fight the Russians. We're just peacekeeping and defensive. You know, NATO is defensive, la, la, la. And then they're going to set up around Kiev on the Russian-Belarusian border. They're going to set up in Odessa, which is still currently held by the Ukrainian military. And then they're going to set up a defensive line along the uh, right bank, the west bank of the uh, Dnieper River. And then they're going to say, look, we're still hundreds of kilometers away. We're not doing anything. But what that does is it frees up 90,000 Ukrainian Army soldiers that are right now on those positions, then move into Donbass and make another counteroffensive. And, of course, also there's a real concern that with all the talk about how NATO countries and Ukraine are running out of ammunition and artillery and tanks and, and all that, of when they're running out of conventional weapons, it gives them an excuse to say, hey, look, we don't have any more artillery ammo. You know, we, we have no choice but to use tactical nukes, you know. We have no choice but to use poison gas. Wow. You know, and it really so is frightening. Let's hope it doesn't get to that. I've got a bunch more questions to ask you on the other side of the news break. Everybody, I'm talking to Russell Texas Bentley here on TNT. A short news break and we'll be back. We're ready. We're ready. News. News. The news is our business and we never close. Never close. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a quick look at your TNT headlines. The wife of WikiLeaks co-founder Julian Assange has warned her husband will die if the UK greenlights his extradition to the US next week, where he faces life in prison on espionage charges. The director of the US Food and Drug Administrations admitted the agency failed to accurately inform Americans about the dangers of the COVID-19 vaccines. And the US has claimed Iranian soldiers are on the ground in Yemen, helping the Houthis launch attacks on ships in the Red Sea. Why not give TNT Radio a follow? We're on all major social platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab, and Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time right here on today's News Talk. TNT Radio. TNT Radio. And we're back with a man and a former soldier in the American Army, a man who saw the world change, saw who was the good guys and who the bad guys were and went and advocated and fought with the good guys, the guy who put his life on the line, is currently doing that as well on the front lines in Donetsk. I'm talking to Russell, Texas Bentley. Welcome back to the program, Russell. Have we lost Russell? We did have a bit no, of a bad. There you go, mate. We've got you back, Russell. Mate, um, you did say there were about 24 million now, 6 million less, um, you know, men floating about the no, place. Mate, yeah. if you... 
if you could break that down, where how many of those have left the country? How many of them are, are fighting? Could you, could you just some rough kind of breakdown so we know what happened to those six million people? Well, um, there's two million of them, and this is this is a very uh, educational statistic. Uh, two million Ukrainians uh, since the the war started in 2014, not 2022, but since 2014. Almost 2 million Ukrainians have moved to Russia, have moved to Russia. You know, they say, wow. oh, the evil enemy, you know, the aggressor nation, and 2 million of them have moved there, where they've been welcomed, where they've been treated as, you know, fe fellow Slavs, you know. And so there's 2 million right there, you know, probably another million to, into the West, uh, probably three-quarters of a million have uh, been uh, – killed in the uh, in the Ukrainian army so far and um, the rest you know throughout the world now, so, you said I mean, but the main statistics more than a million into Europe and and Canada and the United States and um, and, and more than and two million into Russia and I, I would guess a lot of those, you know, of course, the our mainstream media would have you believe these are people that should have fought for their country who are cowards. I would advocate that they are people who didn't want any part of that war because they may have felt that they would have been on the wrong side of it. Well, I mean, uh, it's like World War II, bro. And one of the things that Putin said that's absolutely true is that uh, the Ukrainians have reignited Nazism in Europe. And it's uh, and and really it wasn't them so much as it was uh, the United States, Great Britain, uh, Germany, of course. But I mean, you understand that in history, it was uh, you know the British and American oligarchs were uh, very complicit in financing the rise of Hitler in Germany in the 30s. And what they've done, I mean, and at the end of World War II thousands and thousands of the worst Nazi war criminals were allowed to escape to uh, Canada, to the United States, to South America. And they became very politically powerful people there. And in the military, in the secret services, in politics itself. And uh, I mean, you understand that the deputy prime minister of Canada, whose name is Christia Friedland, her grandfather was one of those Nazis. He was a Nazi propagandist, Ukrainian Nazi propagandist, and uh, he was allowed to escape to Canada. Now his granddaughter is the deputy prime minister of Canada, which really she wears the pants. You know, uh, Trudeau is uh, more like a, a puppet, you know, and, and she's the one that calls the shots, and she's the granddaughter of a Nazi and proud of it. You know, so oh. you understand that, the, U the U.S. is really the one that's behind this whole war, you know, with, you know, with the connivance of NATO and others, but Israel included, and, and they're genuine Nazis, man. They, I mean, they, they say Slava Bandera, which Stefan Bandera was uh, a terrible Nazi collaborator, absolute war criminal during the Second World War in Ukraine, murdered tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of civilians. And, uh, I mean, so... They're they're Nazis, you know. I mean, you can see so many times uh, these on on the tanks and on the uh, uniforms, uh, swastikas and SS lightning bolts and like that, you know. So it's, it is absolutely not 
any exaggeration or uh, rhetoric to call them Nazis. It's what they are. And so, you know, the Nazis are not on the right side of history, so the guys that fight against them must be. Russell, 20 minutes is not going to be nearly enough uh, time for me to ask you half the questions that I had written down. Mate, uh, if you've got some time over the next couple of weeks, I'd love if you could come back on because I've really got a stack of questions. Uh, you've told me I've learned more about what's happening over there in the last 20 minutes than I've probably learned in the last four months from you, and I really appreciate it. One last question, if you've got time. You did say that you know three quarters of a million uh, people have been killed. I'm assuming that means going back to 2014. Over Since this particular conflict started a couple of years back, uh, how many would, would you say? I'm hearing numbers, you know, as low as 14,000, as high as 300,000. Where would you put the death toll, uh, you know, for over the last couple of years? <clears throat> definitely more than 300,000, definitely. Wow. I mean, because the thing is, the Ukrainians, you know, more than half of the people of, of the Ukrainian soldiers that die do not get reported as being killed. They don't, their bodies aren't picked up. They're not taken back. Their families aren't given, uh, you know, like compensation for when the soldier gets killed. They're written down as missing, you know. After this war is over, hopefully uh, after Russia liberates at least all the way to Kiev in Ukraine, you know, there'll be a reckoning. And, and we're going to find out that, you know, the Ukrainians have reported less than half of the soldiers that have died. Mate, it really is horrific. And if Joe Biden is so invested in this war, mate, why doesn't he send his, his own son over to fight it? Wouldn't that be terrific? Mate, the simple fact is, mate, they're a bunch of, uh, um, you know, globalists, mate. They're out protecting their assets, increasing NATO's reach, doing all the things, pushing all the buttons. They could lead the World War Three, mate. And uh, certainly I feel that, you know, I'm in a country where the government is in the wrong side of history and has been uh, on several, several occasions. I thank you very much, Russell Bentley, for your time today. And if we can uh, touch upon this and continue in the next couple of weeks, that would be terrific if you've got the time. And let me say one last thing. It ain't Biden that's pulling the strings. This is Obama's third term, and the next president of the United States will be Michelle Obama, and that will be Barack Obama's fourth term. <laughs> Well, mate, Ed, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to make the joke as to uh, Michael Obama. I just did Michael Obama. Oh, sorry, I meant Michelle. Mate, I do appreciate your time. Russell, Texas, Bentley. Uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. And thank you for coming on TNT today. Coming up after the break, everybody, we're going to be talking to, yes, it's Friday. That means it's time for Omar Khan. Back right after this. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malzberg. During a recent interview on MSNBC, it appeared that Hillary Clinton was going to be brutally honest about Joe Biden's mental health issues. You know, I talk to people in the White House all the time yeah. and, you know, they know it's an issue. But as I like to say, look, it's a legitimate issue. It's a legitimate issue for Trump, who's only three years younger, right? So. It's an issue. But then she turned into Hillary. Once you say that, then you have to also talk about what's at stake in the election. And I'm for Joe Biden for re-election on the merits because I think he's done a really good job as president. So I think he should continue to get out and campaign. He's been campaigning pretty vigorously across the country. You know, and he actually does events where he's interacting with people, yeah. unlike Trump, who stands on a stage and, you know, uh, goes on and on for, you know, 90 minutes. Really? Joe talks to the... The people that show up at his rallies, what, the dozen people that show up? And she mocks Trump for talking for 90 minutes? She's 76. I'd like to see her be able to do that. I think Biden also should 
lean in to the fact that he's experienced. And that experience is not just in the political arena, it's like the stuff of, you know, human experience. Yeah, character. Character, wisdom. I think he should be willing to really hold that out. Oh, nothing like free advice. Let Joe try. It will be fun to watch, but sad at the same time. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on TNT. Right now, the forgotten poor are waiting for healing and care, for life-saving medical care, for a chance to live with dignity and hope. They are waiting for Mercy Ships and you. Mercy Ships is the largest floating civilian hospital in the world with volunteer medical staff and crew who donate their time to save lives. And now, as our newest state-of-the-art hospital ship sets sail, Mercy Ships will double our ability to reach children and adults who need us now. Without the work of Mercy Ships, these patients don't have another option. Mercy Ships is answering the call to serve suffering people who have nowhere else to turn. Together, we are going to some of the world's most desperate places and bringing a wave of hope and healing to those who need it most. Thank you! Thank you! To learn more about this wave of hope, go to mercyships.org today. Dean Mackin on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. And welcome back to the program. Just quickly, I just want to read you that thing about what's happening in France. Absolutely ludicrous. So according to the law, which was passed quietly and secretly through the French Parliament on Wednesday, advising uh, advisement against mRNA or other treatments which are deemed suitable based on current medical knowledge, wow, uh, can lead up to a three-year prison sentence, up to $48,400 fine. Article 4 of the new law, or Article Pfizer, as it's being referred to, uh, by people such as ourselves, you know, you lot and me, um, is it's going to be a threat to um, a prejudgment of alternative medicine and a threat to whistleblowers ominously during this, uh, what has had very little debate, by the way, um, it was fielded uh, for the passage of this fascist law. That's exactly what it is. It eliminates informed consent warnings and uh, where parroted the next pandemic is coming. Why else would you want this thing? Or is this ticking time bomb that I've said is going to go off? Is it about to? And they don't want anybody to draw a line between point A and point B, despite the fact that anybody with an inkling of any kind of common sense or logic would have already got there. Um, just, you know, it's just crazy. It really is. The world has gone mad. Uh, TNT, we're an independent uh, global news talk station that does what others only say that they do. Uh, TNT is a live radio and TV broadcaster that simply tells the truth 24 hours a day, seven days a week. No one in the world does what we do. And we're crisscrossing the globe, providing credible news and opinion all day and night. In the two and a half years that we've been around, TNT has become a credible and exciting platform with brilliant hosts and staff. It's a critical time and we must continue to call out the misinformation and propaganda from mainstream media and their powerful sponsors. Now, we're appealing to our many friends out there and supporters around the world to go to the TNTradio.live site and make a small donation to TNT while we seek the right investors to continue our important mission. And of course, part of that 
is letting more people know that we're on and getting more people to tune in so they can hear terrific people such as my next guest every Friday, Omar Khan. He's a global consultant. He's advised clients in the US, UK, Europe, South America, South Africa, the Middle East, in fact, everywhere. I, I, I don't think there's anywhere that he hasn't. Uh, EPL Global is the firm that he works for, uh, and he seeks to convey better information for better decision making. And he's a terrific regular on this program. In fact, it wouldn't be the same without him. Omar Khan, how are you going? Good, my friend. How about yourself? I've got to take a breath after that big, big mouthful. So, mate, Yes, yes. Well, you do it so well. Thank you, my friend. Mate, now let's get right into it. Tucker Carlson and Russian supermarkets. Tell us what that means. Well, one of the less covered aspects of Tucker's time in Moscow was that he and his three mates, his traveling entourage, had decided that they would go and experience a Russian supermarket. And so they said, we're going to go buy a week's worth of groceries because they were going to be there for a week. Maybe they had taken an apartment. I don't know. And uh, they said, let's just go and see what the stocks are like and what it costs. Because we've all seen these, you know, these pictures of rationing, uh, nothing available, people having to pick up scraps in Russian supermarkets so we can all feel suitably superior. And he said, two years into sanctions... They must be totally, you know, devastated. So he walks into the supermarket. And he gets one of the, uh, and your guy, I'm sure your viewers can watch this. You walk first through something that looks like a fragrance counter, duty-free. <laughs> then you end up in the supermarket. And he starts picking up things, good bread, this and that. Uh, gets to the end. And he asked his cohorts, how much do you reckon this is going to be? We didn't even look at the, he said, just using U.S., you know, mental calculator, of buying your groceries. They said $400, four of us, one week's worth of groceries, about 400 bucks. It was $104. Wow. I, I and, was going to guess half. Yeah. And, and so here's what Tucker's point was. He said that when you can see that in a place like the Soviet, with the ex-Soviet Union, now Russia, with sanctions, with everything going on, that's what you get in the supermarket, and people are there. And he said, back home, where supply chain interruptions and others have hit us hard, inflation's hit us hard, he said, this radicalizes you against your own leaders. Absolutely. He said, I, he said, I am more radicalized against my leaders right now, having had this experience. And wow. maybe more than his interview, uh, even in some ways, it was a graphic illustration um, of something visceral. Something I love that. that I, I think it's something that we, we should all do. That's I thought I would share it with you. Yeah, no, I love that. I, mean, I I would have guessed half. I mean, and when you said almost a quarter, certainly less than a third, I mean, it just tells you, A, how bad we're getting ripped off here, how impacted we are, and our leaders are not advocating for anybody except those who line their pockets. And we see it time and time and time again. And there they are making him out to be the boogeyman, and the Russians are doing really well. I saw Vladimir Putin come out uh, announcing that they're doing some technology, some anti-cancer vaccines, yeah. a vaccine from a country that if I was a, a, a citizen, I would put my arm out. I would trust what whatever they had to offer and and i think that that threatens the big pharmaceutical companies too because i would add, uh, imagine if he says he's got that i would imagine it's coming it does exist it's going to be a reality and they're not going to like that one little bit yeah and i mean one of the things you note about the interview i mean we talked about it a little bit 
Um, Putin has a habit you don't find, and I'm not a great Putin fan. You know, I mean, it's not like you and I are idolizing the man or his human rights record uh, or his uh, economic philosophy. But he does come from a time when leaders have to have a certain stature. And he has a depressing habit for the Western media of actually answering the questions you ask him, <laughs> albeit in great length. And then you kind of feel like you're stuck. Uh, you know, it's like um, uh, Peter Hitchens wrote, it's like being trapped in a prison cell with an unpopular and dogged history teacher. Wow. Who is answering your questions as, and then there was that time in 1386. <laughs> <laughs> and you say, could we fast forward? Um, and and, and but, what a great history teacher he was. I really enjoyed the first 40 minutes of that interview. I mean, I hung off every word. I ever re rewinded a couple of times just to let it sink in what he was saying so I could quote it. Yeah, and well, I mean, and the fact that people say, oh, my God, how could he have done this? Well, what bilge? I mean, you have all the Western nations have embassies in Moscow. So how can it be treasonous to talk to them? Since you have diplomats whose only job is allegedly doing that every day. Um, and, you know, you have BBC has a re reporter there. CNN, I'm sure, is a reporter there. And any of them would give their eye teeth to have had that interview. Absolutely. But it's very funny. Putin gave a, an assessment of Tucker's uh, interview. He said, he said, I was ready to fight. He let me keep talking. I was he. I wanted him to try and interrupt me. I was ready. <laughs> and then he said, "He said, but he has a rare talent among Western journalists." And he said, "That is patience." True. Some people, some people accused him of being too soft. Um, I don't agree. He could have, you know, gone a bit harder. I, I, I like what he did at the end where he advocated for the release of, of you know, one of their prisoners. Um, and again, and Putin addressed that. He didn't shy away from anything. And not just that, but when it comes to Putin answering all of the questions, he has a time set aside every year where people, just anybody, someone from the street, local council members, anybody can go and ask Putin any question they like. Let's see one of our Western leaders do that. Well, our Western, I mean, you know, the UK, at least once upon a time, had the proud tradition of, you know, the, of, the, you know, asking, you know, the PM, PM's question time in Parliament, etc. And you never knew what was going to come your way. And, you know, with that British rhetorical flair, they went at you pretty hard. Uh, of course, you know, they always ran into the problem with Winston Churchill. There's that wonderful story about how uh, a man called Winston Churchill an idiot and was arrested. And of course, the moment they heard about it, unlike today, he was unarrested. But the yeah. next day in Parliament, the opposition said, has Great Britain now reached a time where insulting the prime minister gets you arrested? And uh, Churchill said, you are ill-informed. He was not arrested because he called me stupid or an idiot, but for leaking a national secret in wartime. <laughs> I love it. I love I mean, it. Only Churchill could get away with that um, or come up with that. But, you know, that was tongue in cheek. Now, in the U.S., of course, once upon a time, you had great debates. I mean, just you think about the Kennedy-Nixon debates where people hung on every word and Kennedy won by a sliver. And they say it might have been, um, you know, the fact that Nixon was sweating and looked more harried. 
you know, I had uh, hadn't shaved as recently. These little things, first time on television, uh, could have swayed it. But people sat and listened. I mean, and were riveted, and and they had Gore Vidal and William Buckley going at it in commentary. Yeah, um, literally, you know, one of them hitting the other almost. Um, today, vacuous sound bites. They even want the questions ahead of time. So that somebody who actually thinks for them and writes for them can can you know offer that up to them. Yeah, and, and of course, any journalist that they know of fair income. Uh, I, I know uh, you know. I'll, I'll just quickly talk about someone from another place. Now, Avi Yemeni. He goes all around the place and tries to get in um, as a legitimate journalist, which he is, and he gets kicked out because he he wants to ask questions they're not comfortable with. Speaking about things that they're not comfortable with, yeah. you did say British rhetorical flair or lack thereof when it comes to one Mr. Boris Johnson responding oh. to that which uh, Putin said in the interview, and he didn't like it one little bit. And what's even funnier. When he posted that, I think it was might have been on Twitter. Um, you read all the comments; nobody was on Boris's side. Boris is punch drunk on, you know, his own bloviating nonsense, and he thinks that a little bit of pomposity and harumphing uh, that people will be swayed. But people have lived through the aftermath of his disastrous premiership. Uh, and the peacocks that came after him, and what they've done to decimate Great Britain, the recession, uh, the cultural free fall, the censorship. I mean, of this one proud nation. I mean, this is the nation that invented liberty as a political concept through John Stuart Mill and others. I mean, they gave us that as a currency, and now it's been so degraded there. Yeah. Absolutely. Mate, uh, we've only got about three more minutes, so let's move on to, to something else that you want to talk about. Uh, and uh, we've got about, yeah, two minutes. Go for it. Well, I was just saying that the Julian Assange extradition saga is about to come to an end. Uh, this is supposed to be the final, you know, hearing looming. And imagine if he is extradited, which seems to be the most likely thing uh, that will happen, though I pray otherwise. That will mean that a man who is guilty of no crime in the UK, he has committed no crime in the UK, can be abducted um, through some weird legal process for doing what? For telling the truth, for leaking the yes. truth. That is a big crime and, these days, yeah. Yeah, and a whistleblower who has been pardoned since, Chelsea Manning, you know, is the one who leaked it to him. He made sure, he took great care to make sure there was no mention of people. And it's been pointed out again by Peter Hitchens, actually, and others, um, that there's no demonstration that anybody was harmed. You know, they're talking about classified sources. That's what they always bring up, that these kind of revelations put uh, uniformed people uh, or those serving their country in danger. Not one instance have they been able to cite of any such harm. So you have something, and these were about grotesque things like rendition and black ops and extra constitutional things. You would, there was an era you would think not only could journalists share this, it was their duty. Yeah. Um, and the fact that instead you can end up in maximum security prison tells you, hey, civilization, you had a good run. Wait, don't you uh, long for the good old days? Yeah.
<laughs> Absolutely. Bad old days in other ways, but in this way, uh, surely it was a city on a hill. Yeah, I'm, I'm convinced that, you know, we'll wake up at some point. The question is, will it be too late by that point? Uh, and don't forget, everybody will be covering that next Tuesday and Wednesday, uh, the Julian Assange saga as it unfolds in real time in the uh, UK High Court. And uh, Omar Khan, got to go. I hope you have a terrific weekend and we'll talk to Thank you next you. Friday. Everybody, all the Sonia. best, my friend. Thank you, mate. Sonia Fulton's coming up next. I'm off to have a good weekend. I encourage you all to do exactly the same. Stick around. You're going to have a great old time. And then, of course, happy Robert's coming up after Sonia. Have a great weekend.